Welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. My name is Lauren, and tonight I am joined by... James. Andre. And Ryan. And this week we are discussing the 2019 horror film Us, uh, which is a sophomore film from director Jordan Peele. Uh, it stars Lupita Nyong'o, Winston Duke, Shahadi Wright-Joseph, and Evan Alex as a family who head down to their summer cabin for vacation, only to be confronted by a grotesque doppelgangers of themselves. Um, Us grossed $175.1 million in the United States um, and in Canada, and $80 million in other territories for a global total of $255.2 million, which is pretty solid given its production budget was $20 million. Uh, and as of right now, it has a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And so before we jump into what everyone thought about this film, I want to give a little context as to why we selected Us and not Jordan Peele's other well-known film, his directorial debut, Get Out. So personally, I'm a huge fan of horror films and wanted to make sure that there was one of that genre represented in this season's list of movies. Um, I'm also a huge fan of Jordan Peele's directorial sensitivities. And so I'm pretty excited to talk about this movie. It comes after the directorial debut, Get Out. I like Get Out. It's brilliant. But it's also kind of clean and easy to talk about. Us isn't clean or easy. It's confusing and messy and it unravels a little bit when you think about it too hard. And I think that's good because the best horror films are a little bit confusing. And given that with the last few films and projects he's done, Jordan Peele has become a really important Black filmmaker who tells Black stories that are both sometimes about race and also sometimes not about race. I really appreciate that this film is not about the horrors that come along with being Black in America necessarily, but rather a horror film that happens to have Black folks in it. And it contains several themes that are fun to unpack. So let's sort of like jump into that. First off, what are everyone's initial thoughts about this movie? I'm going to absolutely pick on James A. first. Tell us, James, what was your reaction? She's picking on me first because I am the biggest scaredy cat in the world and was dreading watching this movie. So first thing I want to say is that I am a nearly certified psychologist. And I say that Jordan Peele has some issues that we need to talk about. <laughs> but I thought this movie was pretty good. I don't normally like horror movies. I liked Get Out a lot. I like Us probably a little bit less than Get Out. It wasn't as scary as I thought, but I absolutely with 100% watched an episode of Mandalorian before going to bed so that I would not have nightmares. But I thought it was pretty good. And I'll be interested to hear a little bit more kind of analysis from everyone else. Well, uh, uh, just an important follow up. Uh, what time of day did you watch the movie? I can tell you almost exactly what time because I messaged Lauren right as I was starting. 9.07 p.m. is when we started the movie. Lovely. Um, this was a bad idea. Very bad idea. That was idea. a bad idea. So, yeah, don't do that if you are like me. Ryan, what did you think? I actually really enjoyed a lot of the movie. I think I've mentioned before that my brain likes to pick out all sorts of little Easter eggs or foreshadowing bits that the director's storytellers leave in their works. And I felt like Jordan Peele kind of left just the like the Hansel and Gretel candy trail for me where it was like, okay, yes, like here, here's a twist early if you really want to figure it out. And here's a bunch of other things that will make you curious about things that are secondary tertiary to some of those main questions. Like I really enjoyed the, the journey through those things. There's a number of things that we don't get to see in the movie that I think were 
I was glad to see left un unshown actually. And I think that some of that leads to like the confusion that a lot of people had coming out of the theaters when this came out. I know that a lot of people liked it, but a lot of people were confused about a bunch of different bits. I don't particularly mind that that much. I thought the performances were great. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o being able to do just a, a tremendous job playing two different characters at dramatic, dramatically different extremes was really just an acting flex on, on her part. It was really cool. And and yeah, I, I thought that a lot of the pacing was good. I felt the mood was good. And yeah, I enjoyed the film. I I am also, I, I'm a scaredy cat, but apparently not as much as James. I don't actively seek out horror movies, but that's usually because I have issues with gore, not with like horror or suspense or thrill. And this is very much on the thrill and suspense and existential dread, which is kind of my specialty. And And so in that case, you know, those parts of this movie were really enjoyable for me. Andre, what about you? What'd you think? This wasn't my favorite horror movie. Um, that isn't to say that it was a bad movie. Like, it was pretty good. It just wasn't my favorite. I wanted to like it more than I did. But so in that regard, it was disappointing. But I did enjoy it. The best way I can sum it up is a lot of very well done things, well executed things. And I can't really like there isn't really anything that I can really point at to complain about. It was... Uh, it was just a matter of taste. It just wasn't my type of a uh, horror movie. I totally get that. Like for me, I actually like to talk about this film. I don't think it's as good of a film overall as Get Out was. Technically, it's almost perfect. Like I think the production is really great. We can talk more about the cinematography and editing and particularly sound composition that went into this. But it's still overall less in some ways satisfying of a film and complete of a film as Get Out was. But because of the fact that it's a true horror film and that's sort of what what Peel was set out to do, right? He didn't he was unhappy about the fact that Get Out is perceived as a thriller, a social thriller as opposed to an actual horror film. And so this one actually has many more horror elements and fits more neatly into the horror genre. But because it's a lot messier, it's actually way more fun to dissect and talk about than Get Out is in some ways. So we can jump into that. Let's let's talk about because Andre or because Ryan kind of mentioned this, the characters, right? So we've got one of those cases where a lot of the main characters play dual roles. They're playing them, their original main character and then that character's evil doppelganger. So you've got Lupita Nyong'o, who plays Mom Adelaide. Um, and she also plays... The mom, in this case, as a child, had a run-in with her doppelganger, Red, as we know her through the movie. And honestly, I think Lupita is by far and away the breakout star in this whole thing. She's basically just running circles around what's still a really talented group of folks but it was amazing. You've got Winston Duke playing goofy dad type Gabe and also his sort of like hulking silent Abraham doppelganger. You've got Shahadi Wright Joseph playing Zora, sort of like the eye-rolling track star teenager and her creepily grinning um, doppelganger Umbre. And you've got Evan Alex playing Jason, the sort of like youngest of the, the family and his... Um, disfigured uh, alternative Pluto. And each of them have to play two roles and work off each other really, really well. So what do you think about the ways in which sort of that acting and casting was done? I liked the whole cast. Lupita clearly took it away. And I think Winston Duke did a good job too as Gabe. Abraham's not really like a character. I mean, he, he portrays that vision well, but like that that wasn't a lot to ask. But I was very convinced that he was 
the super nerdy, clearly not reading the situation dad. The child actors, I think they did a great job. I I don't have a lot of strong opinions about their roles because I don't think they did a lot of like particularly interesting stuff. I think Jason did a little bit more interesting stuff than Pluto did as far as like the dual characters. I do think that that was a brilliant move from the structure of the movie to have everybody play two roles because one, it's way cheaper. And two, you, you get a really cool look at like playing off of each other. Cause there are so many circumstances where they're interacting directly with their shadow. And I think the filming of the movie did a great job of that not being weird. Like a lot of times when you see the same actor playing two roles, like as twins or whatever, it can look really weird. And I think they did a great job of making that look like these two people actually did exist in the same space. I recently saw the show Counterpart, which is that same sort of think of it as a Cold War spy meets kind of this idea of doppelgangers and to your point, James, at no point did I question like, OK, like, you know, that's Winston Duke and that's some extra that they brought in because he has roughly the same build. It's like, oh, no, that's Winston Duke and Winston Duke. That's Lupita and Lupita and so on and so forth. Like acting wise, everyone did a good job with their two roles. The only thing that did bother me, though, was how like Gabe at the very beginning was like cranked up to 11 in dad mode. And then over the course of the movie, he just slowly got turned down. It's like, okay, we started out at 11. Now we're at a seven. I'm nice and comfortable. This is fun. But yeah, no, the acting is for sure the strong suit of this film. Production wise, like it's damn near flawless, but the acting easily stands out. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I, I feel like the, you know, especially once the dude playing Gabe and I will say like hashtag comfy dad goals for everything wardrobe choice of activities favorite soundtracks he gets to lie about to his kids all great like 10 out of 10 will be buying those glasses but i but i do think that he really him him hamming up uh the corny dad effect really makes the the contrast between him and abraham so much stronger and i think one of the performances that we didn't talk about that i think really i don't think the movie works as well without especially not, you know, some of the, the notes in the ending is uh, the the person who's playing young Adelaide. Um, I don't remember that actress's name, but the child actor who plays young Adelaide and young Red in their initial interaction has this like wonderfully creepy, steely, steely kind of gaze that just, you know, as she's walking, you know, single mindedly through all these spaces and things silently which sets up so many the so many potential things in the story is the believability of her walking in the space and then her coming back from that experience scarred and even less verbal even less less attached and you know showing how that really affected you know affected her and then when watching uh Lupita regress in some ways when confronted with the specter of being reunited forcibly with her doppelganger. I, I felt like that part came through really well. And they they wove in different flashbacks and things to that time exceedingly well. And I, I really liked that connection from between how the characters were played. Agreed. And I think one of the most impressive things here was that sort of like going off the idea that Abraham, for instance, which is Gabriel or Winston Duke's character's shadow, isn't really there he is much more like a shadow in that he's very silent. 
But that also sort of reminds me that most of the um, shadows are silent, right? So the only one of them that can speak, and even then it's a horrifyingly croaking voice, is red. And every other one is mostly silent. They can make animal noises, and that's about it. Um, and you're not really told why necessarily that's true. You start off with a normal American family going on vacation, and they talk and interact the same way that you would expect a normal family to. And, you know, one night they're in their summer cabin and there's a family out front that's just sort of sitting there silently holding hands, waiting in the dark, which is also, I think, one of the creepiest scenes of this film. And they break into the house and immediately confront the, you know, the main characters and they don't speak, right? None of them actually speak for the rest of the film, which means all the conveyance of who the others are, the tethered is what they're referred to. Everything is through like physical motion, facial expressions, um, the ways in which they move their bodies, the ways in which they kind of like skulk around or maybe groan. They don't actually talk. So it's really interesting in terms of acting ability for those characters to clearly create two very different characters out of the same person without actually being able to affect voice changes or accents or anything like that for the most part. Can't be easy to sort of jump in and out of that, you know, in each scene. But it's still really convincing. I remember seeing something about on set, particular. It was particular about uh, Lupita switching between Red and uh, the main character's name escapes at this moment. Adelaide. Uh, Adelaide. It was something very specific about the onset where like Red's role was very intense, and like basically that day, like they could only shoot Red stuff and. And, and like Lupita was just kind of out of it for that whole day. <laughs> and whereas when they would shoot Adelaide, it would be like Jordan Peele, like reading all the lines, like whispering into a mic uh, so that Lupita could uh, uh, play off of that. And it seemed like because Red was the only one with that extra communication, uh, since everyone else was so physical with theirs, like that in particular was tough for Lupita and she still just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she completely altered her voice to play Red. She mentions that she based her extremely, like, I don't even know how to say it besides croaking, like, voice on a condition called spasmodic dysphonia, uh, which causes, like, a person's voice to go through periods of spasms. She had several health experts on hand with her to teach her how to do it safely. And that's essentially how she was able to create that that kind of voice which really sounded like someone who hadn't spoken for years and years, right? That is a ridiculous level of commitment to uh, to, to this character. Um, but it really came across and, um, and and really draws you in to be listening really closely to these, you know, because remember, she's like your only tent view into the inner world of these folks that's not through actions and or stabbing. <laughs> and so... So when she finally lets that croaking voice out, like you're leaned all the way in, even though it's horrifying, it's just a great effect. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that her physical performance as Red was also very impressive. Like it, she definitely entered like a different kind of space when moving. She still had sort of a spidery like movement, sort of like some of the other Tether did. It was an amazing transformation um, to know that it was the same person playing both roles. It's just very impressive. Yeah. 
Agreed. I also think that's true for Evan Alex, who plays the youngest Jason and also is his shadow Pluto. I think that he and uh, you know, Lupita's, Lupita's characters were the only ones that really had that large of a transformation between their normal person and their shadow in terms of the acting that they had to do. Because both versions of the little boys are really very different. One's withdrawn and one is sort of like animal-like, dog-like, really. He comes off as very dog-like and that he can go from being loyal and kind of playful to just sort of being growling at you and ready to bite basically at any moment. And so the difference of, of Evan Alex playing off himself in a lot of those scenes I thought was really solid. He's also, Pluto's um, one of the only, is the only time really in which um, the shadow, the tethered that Jason has mimics his other's movements the same way. For the most part, you don't really see that with uh, Zora's, Zora and her other, or with Gabe and his other. And maybe it's partially because they're still young, kind of hard to tell. But they are the ones that seem most attached in a lot of ways to each other, aside from Adelaide and Red. I thought that was interesting from like a story standpoint, that they were still somewhat connected while the it appeared that no other character was, and there was no real reason given for that. And it, I thought it was interesting that no one else from the untethered side thought to try that behavior and then it not work. Like I, I kind of expected there to be a, oh, we see it works here, but we see that it doesn't work for everyone else for reasons that are unknown, maybe to be explained. And no one else really tried that, which I was kind of surprised about. I mean, if we think about the fact that none of them talk I don't think that there's been a lot. There was a lot of the opportunity for people to gather information. It was very much like, like he's one of the only four people who's heard any kind of their origin story. And uh, Adelaide, for reasons, you know, is worried about the mimicry piece. I don't think that Gabe was really thinking a lot <laughs> in, this, uh, in, in those spaces. Man was reacting and just kind of moving. I mean, like. If you're a black man and you know that you're in a horror movie, going to a boat is just unforgivable. I'm just glad he could swim. The boat worked, though. Sort of. It did yeah. work. And yeah. and I feel, I feel like they, like, when, when people go, oh, why is Us not a black movie? Like, that's one of the things I'll point to is, that, like, like he got on a boat and lived. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that, that, that's how you know it's a black movie and not, uh, <laughs> even, even if it's not designed to be a black movie, black man got on a boat to escape and it worked is pretty much something only we would do uh so quickly i want to mention another thing related to that you can tell that this was a horror movie made by somebody black because a white person was the first person to die not a black person <laughs> and uh it's interesting we you know this series is all about spotlighting black movies and black cinema but this movie proves that black people in horror movies can make the same stupid decisions that white people in horror movies have always done. And it's like, why are you going outside to talk to these people? Why, why, are you, why would you do that, man? I would I like, would like you to know. hear them point out that there were several decisions they made that were good decisions. Yes. So, like, for instance, uh, Adelaide was immediately like, nope, call the cops, lock the doors, let's get out of here. She tried. Uh, and Zora was almost always on point with her, like, reactions to things. I really loved the fact that some of them did exactly what I would want a person in a horror film to do. And even, even I uh, gave pointed out, you know, when they're in the house and the tethers find the hide a key and he's like, hide a key. What kind of white nonsense is that? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Yes, exactly. Because why would you have one? Come on. Right. But I do agree on the other points about some of it, of his mistakes in particular were very uh, traditional, which I guess you kind of have to have someone that does that, right? Yeah. And 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 also like I'll I'll give Zora bonus points for immediately going check the windows because, you know, girl's head was on a swivel. Um, I greatly appreciated that she didn't. She didn't spend a ton of time looking around. Uh, there's a moment where she like decides that she's going to drive the car, which is pretty hilarious. And it had one of my, I don't think that we've talked about it, but this movie's funny. It's funny in a way that I wasn't expecting it to be. And we know that Jordan Peele made the transition from being he- like heavy, famous comedy man to scary black director cinema person. Uh, and, but like there, there, there are some things in this movie that are just, deeply darkly funny and one of them is zora insisting that she drive when you know ev- her, everyone's kind of reeling from the first attack and she goes hey you know like oh, like of course i should be i should be driving your hands are bound you know your legs all messed up and i've got the highest kill count in the family and then the family keeps starts going back and forth trying to figure out like how many people they've killed and she's like no i got two i killed you know i killed these two twins and that was just like the idea of them going of them like going around checking body count would just like cracked me up. And I'm glad that I was at home because I could pause the movie to laugh appropriately. I feel like that's true, not to take anything away from this movie, but that's true for a lot of horror movies that people don't realize because they just think of them as scary, stay away, scary, stay away. But no, like a lot of horror movies in general, and this one perfectly displayed it, is like, no, there's a certain sense of humor about the situation. And like different things that happen that like is very unique to these like uh, messed up scenarios that these people create. And also just to relieve the stress of the situation. Yeah. Uh, the the Alexa knockoff, uh, the Ophelia, just masterful. Ophelia gave, me one of, gave us one of my favorite scenes, which is when she starts playing <laughs> NWA, fuck them please, <laughs> and the kids arm up. And they go to kill themselves and others. It's amazing. Like, in, in, in I, I'm wondering whether, like, the name Ophelia was chosen on purpose. Because I think that, like, that has, like, a root word of, you know, of, like, helpful or something. Uh, it's just like, help, Ophelia. And, uh, no, like, Amazon may have recorded that whole murder. But they did them no favors in that moment. I'm trying to think of what some of the other things that I thought were, like, little hilarious bits this is gonna make me sound so bad, but when that person got tossed by the car, we're not in spoiler territory, so I don't want to spoil, spoil too much. But yeah, that person got tossed by the car. I I laughed really hard. Yeah, that one was pretty good too. There are lots of well placed like, and I so this is like I will plus one a hundred percent what Andre said. Like a horror movie really typically does have a lot of comedic elements in it. If it's a really well balanced horror film, it should have just enough suspense and creepiness and disgust and laughter built into it because you need to have essentially that like little bit of lemon that brightens and cuts through all the other stuff and usually there are two additional types of flavors that go along with a horror film and one of them is horror and the other is sexuality like those are the two things you typically see most often represented and this one i think does the horror comedy in just the right ways at just the right times and then goes back to ramping up the creepy factor it's not really a scary horror film at all but it is deeply unsettling. And so it's really good at like ramping up that unsettling nature of the fact that you're kind of terrified there might actually be a doppelganger of you living in the tunnels underneath your feet. 
which is not a thing I had thought about before, but now definitely will count amongst my personal fears. And so I think that's a great, good, good place to start talking about the cinematography and sound and horror elements within this film, too, that you've sort of identified, because I do think this film had amazing shots and great cinematography, but it also had incredible sound. And I think while most horror films, you tend to focus on like what it looked like, this is a film where I mostly focus on what it sounded like, because the ways in which they leveraged music and took even music that you knew and loved and twisted it until it became creepy and scary was really just incredible. And like the sounds of things like those scissors mm. slicing back and forth was never afraid of scissors before. And now I'm deeply unsettled by scissors because of this movie. So were there some of the elements that really like freaked you out while you were watching it a little bit? Didn't freak me out, but the symbolism that was visually all throughout the film, this is one of those where we're in an audio medium, but we have some great visual stuff for us to talk about. Like if you look at the painting behind Lauren in her background, uh, how there's kind of like these three shadow people and like this one person sitting up front, uh, you had the the thing with Jason wearing his mask, which was like an animal mask and then the behavior of Pluto and like different elements looking at different uh, tethered when you compare them to uh their, I don't want to say real world person, but their surface person. It's just a lot of great uh, symbolism, basically saying like there's a little echo or there's a little shadow or tethered uh, here that I really like throughout the film. Like the uh, shot of the real spider and the plastic spider on the desk. Mm -hmm. Or even as they cut to the beach scene at the beginning when the family is walking across the sand and the shot is from above. And you see them walking a single file and you see their long shadows like spreading out across the sand, tracking each one of them, right? Like it was a really great sort of a preview of what to expect where they're being followed by their own shadows. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's there's also a number of references to 1111 um, in the movie. In in the the early scene, Adelaide, like young Adelaide walks down the boardwalk in Santa Cruz and she sees you know, like a like holding street preacher kind of thing, holding up a sign that says, you know, Jeremiah eleven eleven. I I remembered that before that, you know, she's asking her parents to win her stuff for her birthday at the boardwalk. She wants shirt number eleven. You know, like she notices the alarm clock. It's at eleven eleven. Every time one of those showed up, I got really uneasy because I checked that Bible verse when it first showed up on screen and that Bible verse Jeremiah eleven eleven reads, Therefore thus saith the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. So that kind of spelled out to me that unlike the ending of Get Out that has people cheering and feeling resolved, that was very much the we're going to have a bad time <laughs> signal that it is not ever going to get better during this story. And, and because of that, I had this like slowly aching dread of like, I'm glad that I looked it up because it would have been nice, you know, like having that extra dread helped to set the mood. But also if I didn't know it, I would have been really haunted by just the 1111 stuff popping up all the time as often as it did. Yeah. Even the shirt. So there's a couple other things, but like I kind of want to save them for the spoiler part because um, they also count as hilarious things. But I don't think there's a way to talk about them without without getting into some of the spoiler territory. Yeah, that's fair. Even the shirt that like young Adelaide picks is a thriller shirt, which good for her. Excellent taste. 
but you still have a double L in the middle that looks like a one one, right? Like it's just kind of inescapable that particular theme. One of the things I love in in the visuals here, which is unusual for a horror film, most horror films try to hide the evil people, right? Like the villain is typically supposed to be sneaky. They're shot in darkness. They're hidden everywhere. These films are wearing bright red suits. You're you're not gonna miss them. Like you have many people in these red jumpsuits coming out from underneath the earth and attacking people that look just like them, but they're not hard to see. It's like wearing a prison jumpsuit. It's an, it's bright even at nighttime. And so there's a scene when Zora is running away from her tethered ombre and she's, you know, trying to escape and trying to find someone to help her. And in the background of the scene, Zora's in the foreground, there's a flash of red and you know exactly that Umbre is like on her tail and sticking up around the side. And it's not hidden at all. But it's really great because you don't need to hide it. You don't need to rely on necessarily the jump scares here when you actually can rely on like the tension that you know she's sneaking up there. Which you only know because she's in a bright red jumpsuit. And aside from my eternal question of where did the jumpsuits come from? And where did the scissors come from? I at least really appreciated that actually them making their villains stand out in that way, as opposed to, you know, having them hide and skulk around in corners and in masks and things like that. Yeah, surprisingly low on jump scares now that I think about it. Just a lot of haunting dread about what everything you're seeing means for everyone. And and there was a part of me that was wondering whether this was going to be just you know, kind of a localized problem, I guess to say of like, is this just this one woman's family? And, you know, this is the kind of, you know, we defeat the evil be defeated kind of thing. But it quickly shows that like, oh, no, there's there's a lot of these folks down there. They're all over everywhere. And it just doesn't go well for people. And I, I think that having that having that as the context really drives a lot of the decision making in the middle of the movie and makes the you know, the fear about how to handle this, because even because they're so human, like they are, they're not superhuman in strength. They're not like superhuman in ability. They're Americans. Just like us. So other than, other than the power of American exceptionalism, uh, (laughs) they, you know, they're, 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 they're not able to fly. They don't have um, a bunch of, you know, crazy telekinesis or anything. So it's like, right. You know, why can't I just get away from this person? But the idea of that tethered being connected to you, connected to your soul, and and basically mimicking everything that's happened in your entire life, the realization that they will think like you do. They will understand how you think. I don't know if he meant to do it this way, but there's definitely like a, like a kind of double consciousness thing happening there where it's like, right, people who are, who are forced to observe a dominant culture can understand it almost better than the people living it to the point where... It, you know, we were nobody's surprised when Red's able to figure out where they're going in, in like almost every situation. And Adelaide recognizes that, like, they're not going to be able to, like, outthink or they need to do something that she, that she wouldn't think of, which I thought was actually very astute and normally a kind of very late game realization that she has very early of recognizing how screwed they were. I appreciated that. I want to circle back to something that Lauren said, because I think it's a sign of uh, great horror and that there weren't that many jump scares. <laughs> just, just again, just to reiterate, not even to reiterate, just to emphasize like how important that is for horror. You craft horror well. You don't need to 
have something a loud noise or something quick coming at the screen or you know things like that yes jump scares scares do have a place in horror but it's like they shouldn't be the sole way that you get your scares and uh that's just a testament to this movie where everything was just so unsettling and bothered you so much that that's what made it terrifying and that's what brought all of the emotions that we associate with the genre speaking of unsettling what did y'all think of the rabbits especially in the opening scene the credit scene they are they're exceedingly creepy and i you know like i'm my my wife calls me a disney princess because like i can get along with nearly any animal but I very much got the distinct feeling that Jordan Peele hates rabbits and just thinks they're creepy. And that's why he, he put them in this way. That is exactly correct. Yes. Good. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, really? But I, I think it was actually an important, it was, it was the kind of thing that I, I don't know about anyone else, but the second we're introduced to the tether and we realize how many of them there are, it's made immediate sense to me because it was like, right, well, how do you feed a bunch of forgotten people. Oh, you have something that just populates as fast as possible so that there's, you know, continuous food source. Although like there's no actual, it falls apart when you go past that because what are the rabbits eating um, in order to do that in the subway tunnel? But otherwise, I think that the idea of, oh, you look up, there's one rabbit and then there's two, you know, like it, it gave a nice little bit of creepiness uh, seeing the cages and trying to figure out like, why would anybody need this many rabbit cages? Like, all of it was just very unsettling. I don't know. Andre, what'd you think? Uh, when I looked at the rabbits, I didn't think too much of the rabbits, to be perfectly honest. I was just thinking about uh, what you're saying, like, what did the rabbits eat? I was just like, well, rabbits aren't as cute as cuddly and cuddly as people think. And for that, I would leave everyone to research. <laughs> I'm also wondering whether there was, wh whether the rabbits were kind of like an Alice in Wonderland get, you know, like, you're, you're, you go underground, there's... You know, there's white rabbits, there's a red queen, whether that was the kind of motif he was kind of setting up, but I'm not sure. That's not studied. I didn't have a ton of time to look at extra materials, but it did pop out to me that like, oh, yes, anytime I see a white rabbit in an underground setting, my brain goes there. I have the same theory, and I think we should talk about that when we get to the spoiler section, because there is more to the movie that I think elaborates on that. I love that overall theory. We'll hold off on that for now. James, what about you? Even though this was your first time watching and you were new to the film, what did you think of the first five minute long scene that's just a slow pan out of a wall of rabbits? I thought it was a little weird. At the time when, when we were watching it, both my wife and I were like, well, that was a weird way to start this movie that, that seems to not really have anything to do with the overall story as it was presented at that time. I think given the, I've seen the whole movie now, I think even the payoff of the rabbits isn't really that great yes we see what that was referencing like where that was but i felt like if you're gonna open the movie that way you should have that be some significant component of the movie and i kind of felt like they didn't do that and so i don't really know why you would open the movie in that particular way it, it didn't wasn't necessarily bad but it just didn't completely pay off for me like i sort of expected What's the, what's the saying? If you load a gun, it needs to be fired in the second act or something along those lines. That, that's sort of the impression I got from this rabbit setup is that like I kind of expected it to be something and it didn't really feel like to me that it was something. Check off's rabbit. Yeah. 
we saw a flare gun payoff in that way, but uh, but not quite the rabbits. Before we go to the spoilers, one more just sort of open question. We've talked a little bit about the cinematography and what made this an interesting horror film. We haven't talked as much about the sound. And so I'm curious in particular what you all thought of the soundtrack. I think that there are basically, I think, three important songs that go across the film, uh, not including NWA. Uh, no disrespect to them, but three other main ones, one of which is the theme that was created specifically for this movie, which is called Anthem. And that is sort of like the child's choir you hear over key parts of the film, and they're singing nonsense mm. words. So if you're not sure what that is, it is literally nonsense, which is amazing. There's the uh, 95 song, I Got Five on It, that shows up in the trailer and also in the film itself. Uh, and then towards the end of the film, there's also a Tchaikovsky number also included in that. Um, the pas de deux for the Nutcracker Suite is included. Curious overall, what do you guys think about music in this? I will say that the original thing they created for this with the children's choir, my initial reaction to it is like, this sucks. Not like the, the, the it's, it's incredibly effective. It's really haunting and scary, but just hearing it was just like, I don't like this. <laughs> I like, I don't want to, don't pad the creepy noise. It sounds like I'm, you know, about to get stabbed, which is thematically appropriate, but that's the kind of music I would expect to hear if I, in my head, if I was about to get stabbed. So every time it shows up, I'm just like, Oh no, I'm about to get stabbed. <laughs> Very erudite analysis. The, the Lunas, I got five on it pieces, uh, really fantastic. There's it contributes to one of the most interesting moments of the film that I have to wait till we get to spoiler territory to talk about. Uh, and, and lastly, with the Nutcracker Suite, we talk about Adelaide learning like after her abduction, her parents say like, oh, how do we help our daughter communicate? You know, she's got PTSD and they go, oh, you should find other ways for her to express herself. So one of those was dance. And, and uh, I having like the Nutcracker Suite be you know, playing, playing in those different, different spots and having um, that dance background come up in a few different scenarios was really effective. Like, I, I don't think that any of those pieces overstayed their welcome. You know, like they, they didn't like linger on too long. And whenever they show back up, it was in uh, for everything except for the title thing, they show back up in a slightly different form than they did before. So it kept, it kept things interesting. Yeah. I thought the music was pretty effective in this m movie and it wasn't overused sort of like Ryan said, like, in a lot of horror movies that I've seen, it can be common for the music to sort of warn you or at least tease you about a thing that might be happening. Um, and I thought the music in this was much more subtle. It was very purposefully put to reflect the current going ons of the movie and not as a way to like sort of get you ready for something that might be happening, like a jump scare or you know, something like that. So. Um, I also think just in general, the soundtrack was fire. Like all the songs are sound really good. I would probably listen to, I mean, if I, if it didn't remind me of a movie that made me scared, I would probably listen to it like on Spotify or whatever, except for maybe the choir. Cause I don't need any more creepy kids in my life, but everything else I thought was really good. Yeah. I liked how the audio worked with the visual, like how different music, music sort of cued a different feeling. Or um, just kind of signal to the audience that like, okay, this is what's going on right now. That said, the thing that really stood out to me was how uh, the music changed over the course of the movie and how stuff that we'd heard early on 
all of a sudden had like took on a different genre or took on a few different instruments that uh, we weren't that weren't uh, played for us earlier in the in the movie. So I thought that the audio was on point. It was oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm thinking about this analogy. I was thinking about the well, one that I heard of it moves in silence uh, much like lasagna where it's just like you know it's there and it's contributing but you don't it's not you don't really notice it because of how engaged you are with the visuals of the film as a kid who was maybe 11 when i got 500 originally came out and became an unofficial anthem of all of the dope fiends in my neighborhood I like that, like that, like the, the, the notes of that song or the thing you like would, if you ran up to a piano and you didn't know how to play piano, you would start playing that. So I, my ears were perked up every time it showed up and it's showing up with like the dark cello, like, like the dark cello tone was like really cool. It felt really satisfying to, to have it show up that way. I thought that the chopped and screw version we hear in the trailer was pretty pretty high on the creep creep factor for what you could do to that song and then that orchestral version just has so much dread built into it it's great now i'm just one orchestral version of still dre that might exist i mean i will say this with that the version of the if i got five on it that's in the trailer is called the tethered mix and it actually was in the trailer first and because the reaction to it was so great they actually put the song that version into the film itself because i also completely love it. One, I love the fact that I love any time where someone takes a rap or hip hop song and uses it in this sort of way, because we're really used to hearing like the creepy children's choir, choral type music in these kinds of movies. You're used to hearing classical music in these kinds of horror movies. You rarely ever get to hear black music in horror movies and being able to really like slow that song down and focus on like the lower tones of it. I thought was a really great way to actually infuse what really was a cultural touchstone for the 90s into this like new horror aesthetic. I'm totally digging, so I hope that happens more often with this kind of music. Um, if you don't mind, as a quick aside, I remember I uh, once heard a jazz player. This wasn't anyone particularly famous. This was just uh, one that I met, uh, met one time. Uh, he's talking about learning how to play in church, in a gospel church, church and uh, playing jazz. And on a similar note, a lot of those melodies you'll hear all throughout Black culture and not even realize it, how like a gospel melody would just be a sped up jazz melody. And so how just looking at how those uh, different patterns in music are manipulated to create different emotions. And I thought, you know, just looking at this movie and the way that they took hip hop and just slowed it down, well, uh, how Jordan Peele normally just does that in his movies with hip hop, just changing the uh, pace of it so that it creates a different emotion is great. If you're still with us and you haven't seen the film yet, you don't want any spoilers, you are at this moment encouraged to stop, go find this film. You can stream it on all 5,000 HBO streaming services. Um, and you can also rent it on Amazon Prime. Past this point, uh, there will be significant spoilers. So head on out if you need to. For those of you that are brave enough to keep going, let's keep going. Before spoilers, if you are a scaredy cat, this movie is still reasonable to watch. So it is. <laughs> it, it'll be okay, but not at night and daytime. Maybe not for at sure. a summer cabin. If you're at your summer cabin and it's nighttime and like, oh, yeah, there's several of you. Maybe just wait till morning or something. All right. Spoiler time. So 
I have a lot of questions about the things that are revealed throughout this movie. This is one of the movies where one of the flaws I think the movie has is there are a lot of things that don't make any sense. And the more I think about and question them, the fewer answers I have. Like, I love the fact that Red kind of becomes a messiah for the other tethered, and she basically inspires them to revolt and rise up against their surface counterparts. But I really want to know, and as a product manager, I appreciate her ability to mobilize people and get them to move towards a collective goal and execute. So like, I'm very impressed by her checklists, by her ability to organize, all those things. But I want to know, where did they get the jumpsuits and the scissors and the gloves? Because there's a huge question here, in addition to who maintains the escalator that takes you down to the creepy uh, tethered basement. I have a lot of questions about how this world actually runs. What was the significance of this specific time that they decided to, like, come out? Why did it seem like at first only she wasn't tied to her tether, but then all of a sudden everyone is untied from their tether for reasons that don't appear to be explained? I had a bunch of other stuff, too. How many people have tethers? Do immigrants have tethers? What's happening here? And how long ago did this program end? They they explicitly say that the the tethered versions of her family, you know, get together and have children, and this you know like have the children who become the tethered versions there, and like I'm really confused about how well that works um, as a transmission method. There's a whole lot of things that don't really hold up if you look at them too close, um, and and I kind of accept that, but there's. Like, I kind of want to, like, I got to get it out because it's like, it's been driving me nuts and I have to talk to talk about it. The goal of the tether seemed to be to like, not only just to get out, like, she doesn't want to just kill Adelaide. She wants to make a statement. She wants the tether to never be downtrodden again. She wants to make a statement. And her statement is Hands Across America. And we know that like, she has a Hands Across America shirt on. And that's, and that became like the whole identity of her entire rebellion. She's the only one that can talk. She's the only one who has language. You come down there and there's a classroom. Also, like, why would there be a classroom? Where was the where the stuff come from for a classroom? Did young Red just bring all this stuff down? That was them, you know, practicing for the um for the hands across America. She was like, that was that was just like I I gotta give them a good diagram. <laughs> See, that's not the question about the classroom. My question about the classroom is about the red handprints on the walls. Mm. See see, they were little kids' hands well, though. And it was only red paint. <laughs> And so, well, we assume it's pain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, so I was just like, okay. someone had to be supporting this because who cleaned right. up after the rabbits? How did the plumbing still work? How did the escalator and the lights still work? Why did the government just not kill everyone? How funny was it to see a group of people pretending to be on a roller coaster? It's amazing. <laughs> that was pretty funny, though. <laughs> that, like, that was way. just, like, that was brilliant. And, <laughs> like, and we talked about the parts of the movie that were really funny. Like, that, like, that stuff was darkly disturbing and super funny of just like imagining all these people like oh right we just have to pretend to play rock paper scissors because none of this matters and we don't control the outcome (laughs) or we're going to like all of us are on a thing and but also like when do like is it a kind of thing where like when someone goes to sleep the tethered has control that's a possibility because like there there were dorms they had like bunks like i have so many questions yeah i mean one of my questions is like similar to the like Adelaide Red seemed to be the only ones that could kind of come untethered, but pre- and eventually, you know, Red convinced the other tethers to break free of their tethers. 
But before that, did they know they were tethered? Did they understand like what they were compared to what was happening on the surface? How much did they actually know about their counterpart? It felt like at least in the scene where, you know, you've got a little red um, sort of turns and realizes that Adelaide is coming into the coming into the funhouse and goes up to me and are like, can you sense your tether being nearby? Is that what was happening between those two? Did that happen with others? Because there are a lot of people at that boardwalk. Could any tether have just like come up? Did they previously, did other tethers escape? Do they have any real free will or like self-awareness? Why is there an unattended carnival ride? <laughs> is there an unattended attraction? carnival ride? And why was this still there like 30 years Perfectly later? Perfectly maintained. No cobwebs. Like the, the, the tether custodian that's taking care of the, you know, the underside of the thing is also just polishing all this, you know, thing for this funhouse mirrors uh, thing that has no attendant is making no money. There's no, just really poor circus management. <laughs> this is why you don't go to circuses right here. This yeah, right here. Like, you know, you're, you know, you got your carnies, you got your secret underground mole people. Um, just, you know, just a whole lot to take in. The games aren't, games are rigged way too many reasons not to participate i, I think we've, we've danced around a bit but like the the big spoiler of the movie and the big twist is recognizing that red and adelaide's connection isn't necessarily accidental in the same way and that when young adelaide gets like like confronts her doppelganger um on the boardwalk in the house of mirrors she's not the one that comes back and i think that the the movie gives you a couple hints that that's the case but because young Adelaide was so silent and so weird and walked through things, you, you couldn't be completely sure. But I felt extremely sure within like 15, 20 minutes of the movie that that's what was the case. And I was watching that unfold. And the reason was because Adelaide was like the Adelaide we, we see is like is a black woman who couldn't who couldn't snap on two and four. She was snapping on one and three. And that immediately said that like. They're like, oh, this movie is about doppelganger. She's a doppelganger. She's not snapping on beat, which is an incredible thing to have in there as just like a hat tip to your black viewers. Can you throw that kind of shade in a podcast where we can't collectively clap on beat? We're not all in person, hey. but we're not all in person. Yeah, there's a certain <laughs> the internet latency fails there. Come on sure. now. Sure. <laughs> there, there, there's just four it. other just people saying. underground all talking into like sticks and like <laughs> talking into sticks and broomsticks, uh, <laughs> pretending to podcast because like we forced them in this horrible. Oh, wow. That's an awful thought. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You forget. You forget. Clapping. They're also in different rooms. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Well, are they? But they're clapping on yeah. beat. Geographically, I want to know how this also works. Yeah, there are several hints that Adelaide is not who you really think that she's supposed to be, right? Like, it's the clapping or the snapping on beat was a sign. There are other moments where she knows just too much. Like, she talks about what the tethers right. are, what they know, how they're worrying about things really confidently through several points of the film when she shouldn't right. technically know any of those things. Um, but she does. And there's also the scene where they're at their friend's house after the friends have been murdered by their tethered and she ends up killing the last twin and then just sort of like starts to almost snarl in a way that the tethers sort of like do. And there are a couple of moments like that where you sort of see her true nature emerge and then she quickly catches herself. I actually think that's where the movie didn't quite walk the line as well as I would have wanted it to. It was too obvious that she was a tether. It wasn't 
over the top obvious, like it could be in some films, but it was just slightly too obvious to make that reveal. Yeah, really, I mean, there really there were so many subtle hints for it that they could have done without the the snarl, the you know, the extra snap for the murder. Like they didn't need to do any of that. Uh, I think that like the the really subtle things, like the fact that you never see her eat meat and that she's she she drinks nothing but water like i i thought that i i was noticing those kind of things and the second they said like oh well, all we like while you were eating you know chris's dinner you know we had you know raw rabbit and i was like oh so yeah so if she's from down there then she probably wouldn't want to eat things that reminded her of her time down there because that's where she's from you know like that that kind of those kind of things would have been really enjoyable to just build on slowly but instead we kind of got a couple Hey, wink, wink, not, not, not like if you haven't figured this out yet, please do. Also, the fact that she, that, um, red, you know, red is the only tether that talks. Once I realized that none of the rest of them were talking, I actually sent the subtitles on to make sure that there wasn't some kind of like weird groan that I wasn't picking up kind of thing from people. It's like, okay, no, like they're really not talking, then it's not a thing. And so, like, it, you know, I spent, so then I ended up spending more mental energy on trying to figure out why they had one glove, whether that was a Michael Jackson thing because of the thriller shirt. And like, where do they get these shiny jumpsuits? Then like, the core mystery of the main character because it wasn't really a mystery. There were a couple other things too that I wasn't quite sure on, but the movie tried to like explain. So, the movie tried to explain that Red was different and that the tethered realized she was different by her dance, but that didn't completely make sense to me. Like, wouldn't any of the tethered's been able to mimic their surface person's dance? So I don't I didn't know why that was key. And they also explicitly said that they planned for a long time for their breakout and they showed them sort of folding their jumpsuits at their beds. But when Adelaide goes back down there, those are still folded up on the beds. So like what I didn't know what the significance of that was. And then one other thing that I didn't quite get is that it seemed like at least the impression i got was that the tethered could only kill their untethered person like another tethered couldn't kill the untethered version of someone else because we have her friend whose name i don't remember the the wife in the house that they Kate, yeah i think it was katie, it was katie. her yeah. her tether almost kills adeline but doesn't and i couldn't quite figure out what the logic was there like if you're just going around like killing folks on the surface to take to, to take their life, which is kind of what I assume their goal was. Why wouldn't you kill her there if you had the opportunity? I, I didn't know if it was like they couldn't or they just decided not to explain that. I felt like that particular situation had more to do with Red as the leader saying, no, I want Adelaide for myself. Yeah, agreed, because they do kill the neighbor. Umbre, who is Zora's tethered, kills like oh, a neighbor guy right. that comes out and yeah. has about her in a car. Because I also originally thought maybe they couldn't kill, or they'd agreed not to kill each other's tethers, that they each got that off tree themselves. But they're off during, during the big tethered people. conference call. Um, like I don't like the the communication plan is another thing that I have a lot of questions about. Um, it was a long line of telephone, maybe stretching across the U.S. They all just uh, held hands but, and shot it to each other. Except ears. for none of them could talk. Uh, sorry, I need to stop thinking about this because it's going to drive me nuts. But I I think that the 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 tethered having their you know their thing of like we're we're going to take our place in the sun was a really I, I wasn't sure if there was going to be a big allegory to a bunch of the stuff in the story. But I definitely did feel the 
hey, you know, you're taking advantage of this forgotten underclass happening here, and y'all deserve this for letting this happen to human beings that have souls, even if they're part of yours. Like, this is really just screwed up, and y'all deserve what y'all get. I completely understand that from a upper class, lower class, like concept. The part where I feel like that theme falls apart is that the surface people aren't taking advantage of the below people. Like they don't know that they're there. And I think that that connection would be stronger if there was something that the surface people were gaining from the tethers being underground. Controlling the rabbit population. Rabbits. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think it's, I mean, I think it's all around classism, but I think the piece that you're getting at, James, is that a lot of it's actually about privilege, right? You don't necessarily have to be actively oppressing someone to still have privilege and to still be ignorant of the ramifications of that privilege, right? So I think a lot of the idea is that you, you know, we might have some kind of privilege with someone else is suffering. We may not be at all aware of that. That still exists. And so in this case, I think the themes in this movie which are really strong around classism and marginalization and privilege and sort of the duality of American society where there are people at the bottom inherently and people on the top inherently is uh, I think the movie is trying to sort of convey that through the fact that you have this hidden underclass that you may not have realized were there but they were and now they're coming for what they think has been owed to them. Um, I do think it was messy because yeah, I was like, I think it's messy. I think it was messy delivered as an overall theme because of the fact that you never, it never comes after the people that created the system, right? They talk about the government basically created clones of people, but forgot to create or couldn't create their souls. And so they share a soul and blah, blah, blah. But if the shadowy government is keeping them down there, it actually never takes this fight to them. And right. so it feels kind of hollow because it's helping you address that you might self privilege, but it's not actually correcting the issue in the right way either which maybe maybe you know uprisings never can so i guess that's what there's always that question yeah um, i agree i think that there's like I, I feel like the message is really strong i agree also with just the i feel like the the government did it is a huge cop-out and the fact that we don't get any kind of details about we're gonna say, oh, you know, i don't know government did it it could have easily been aliens did it and left us and forgot it would have had no bearing on the plot and that to me is like a big weakness because there's opportunity there to tell something more of a story. But I do really think that the, the idea of the tethered as underclass, the, the idea of on the surface world, if you know, the people who have the privilege just going about their daily lives oppresses people and it oppresses people in a way that they can't see. And I thought it was most effectively demonstrated during red's initial speech in the living room, where she talks about the course of their lives um, and how, you know, like she doesn't, like, you know, she doesn't get to have your whole place. Like, right, you found your prince charming, which meant that I ended up with Abraham. Like, like, like the removal of choice, the feeling dragged along was something that I thought was really powerful. I have no clue how Red as a single, special, regular human who, and I also don't know, like, when she was able to talk again, because young Adelaide gets choked by Red. And I realized that, oh, like, well, she probably like had windpipe damage or something that led to the the breathing condition they were talking about, which made a lot more sense as to why Lupita based it off of a, a medical condition. But, you know, all of that coordination, the goal of just trying to, okay, we'll get to the surface and then we'll replace them and we'll do hands across America like I saw on, on this tape at the beginning of the movie. And it's like, and then what? And then what will you do? 
I, I just find it hard hard to believe that you could spend that long plotting and planning and getting jumpsuits measured and made uh, without starting to think about what happens after. I do have a theory about that, and I don't know if it's right. So I, I was talking to my wife about it, and still one of the last things, or at least the, the impression I got was one of the last things she saw on TV was Hands Across America. And the ad says, well do hands across America, which will solve hunger. And like, as an adult, I'm like, well, that's a silly like connection because like clearly holding hands is not how you solve hunger. But as a little kid, you might literally think that holding hands across America just like makes this work. And if that's the last connection you have, then I could see how you might think, well, if we just do this, then like some magic will happen. And the situation will be yeah, solved. That, that, that is an incredibly good point. I forgot that the Hands Across America was to end hunger. And for a group of people who are living off of, uh, you know, like rabbit tartare, that's definitely probably an appealing concept. Pretty easy to get folks on board. Tired of rabbit? Hold hands. Dab some people with some scissors. You know, we'll figure out the rest of the steps when we get there. I, I'm overall happy with how a lot of the movie things came together. I agree with Lauren that it's really messy, that there's a lot of things that could have had more explanation. I still wonder uh, near the end of the movie when Red and Adelaide are having their dance fight almost, like which is was honestly just a really cool scene. They have a conversation that you're not allowed to hear. I, again, I downloaded subtitles to like check these couple moments. There is no subtitles for that. You do not hear what Red says to Adelaide, but she clearly says something and Jason clearly hears it because he's locked in the locker. But we don't ever get any payoff what she could have said in that moment. And I really, really want to know. And I don't know whether any of you all have thoughts on what that conversation could have been. Or Andre, you thought had some thoughts on that scene, too. My biggest thing with that scene was just it was one of those moments like I wasn't even thinking about that conversation. It's just as one of those moments of film study where I was just like, this is everything that I need. That last fight with between Red and Adelaide. I feel like if I'm being hyperbolic about the situation, I'm talking about uh, Kurosawa and one of his works or but like to be more realistic, it was more like the opening of Baby Driver or like the way that they did a lot of the car chases in that movie of how like the sound was perfectly rhythmic with what's happening on screen. And it's just everything played together so well. It was just mind blowing to me. Yeah. So that's where I was with that scene. I wasn't even thinking about like the implications of the story. I was just like, this is amazing. Yeah. Black Swan can never. Right. It's also the moment where there's all these little mentions or peaks of Adelaide dancing throughout the movie. But that was the first time you actually really got to see dance. And it was it was literally dance fighting. But it was basically dance as an expression of anger and hatred and like self-loathing technically in some ways, and it was really, really beautifully done. I actually am really sad because I think the exposition beforehand was unnecessary and ruined it. But that scene by itself, if it had just been that scene, it would have made like that whole part of the movie perfect. As for like what they say to each other, I'm actually totally on board with not knowing, because I do think that one of the best parts of the movie is what you're not told. And that, that has to be done judiciously. And that the movie's exposition as trying to explain the world is too much, and they should have cut that out. And so I appreciate that you don't hear what happens between Adelaide and Red, because it doesn't really matter. I'm not even actually sure Jason hears it. I think Jason sees their interaction. I think he sees his mother kill Red, 
and also go into like a mini like version, like revert to her old self. And he knows that she's really a tethered because he suspected back when she was murdering the other twin. And now he basically has seen confirmation. So he ends the movie knowing that his mother is one of them. But it, and he puts his mask back on at the end of that, at the end of the movie, because he essentially kind of hides from her as part of that and symbolizes that she's also been wearing a mask the whole time. So that part is beautiful. So I think that because you can see those things happening, you don't need to know what was actually set. I did like that, especially the the reveal that he seemingly knew what was going on. I only have one issue with it. And my one issue is that it would have been more impactful if he hadn't seen his sister kill the other twin with the um, golf club where she like beat that twin in the bathroom because there's only really three instances where he sees someone being like particularly brutal to a tether. There's two that involve his mother that I think really encapsulate the, oh, she's different than us in a way. But then there's the one with his sister, which kind of breaks that. So like if that one wasn't there, I think the impact of the other two would be strong. That's fair. Although I think it's less the brutality and more the body language and the physical gutter, like guttural sounds that Adelaide makes when she reverts back to herself. Because the tethered, for the most part, aside from red, don't speak, right? But they do scream and moan. And so that when she has those moments, she does that as well. I shouldn't scream, but she like she makes low guttural throat noises. The same way that the other tether do. So that's actually what the, at least for me, was the clue that she was actually a tether and not, a, for lack of a better word, normal person. And I think that was probably true for him as well. If you like, so I have the ability to watch that movie a couple of times. And so if you actually really closely look at the difference between Lapita's sort of like physical presence when she's reverting back to her original self versus what Zora was in all fairness, perfectly reasoned, like freaking out and murdering that child because you've got to make sure they're dead. It's actually a really different physical motion in either case. My question is, did Gabe know? Because there is a scene where they don't call attention to it in the movie all that much, but there is a scene where the family is driving along and Gabe is staring at her. And it was like right after... I want to say it's right after they killed the one tethered by uh, sending her flying into a tree. Oh, ombre, yeah. Ombre, yeah. Yeah, I which that scene, I I literally rewound it, and <laughs> as soon as she went flying, I yelled "yeet." <laughs> I had to do it because it was so funny. So, so that scene's actually really interesting because so we see her go beast mode and kill kitty and make sure she's and and also kill like the twin and go like you make sure she's extra dead. But when she sees the tethered version of her daughter there, she doesn't finish her off. She kind of just like gently caresses her face. And and I think that that was like, that, that was very much one of those like, oh, that's absolutely, she's absolutely a tether. She's what was like, is having some sort of empathy for this version of her child, which she doesn't, didn't show for some of the other tethers that she was dealing with. She did the same thing for Pluto too. Like when Jason takes control of Pluto and walks him backwards into the fire, she's upset about it. And it's the only times where she shows upset about the tethers dying. You could say that's because she's a mom and she's still watching versions of her kids. But I do think it's because she knows that they're children who are tethered and she personally identifies with that. And there's no way out for them. There's one more one more visual thing that I want to mention about 
the progress of the movie is that partly because Adelaide is aware of like she's she's racking up a body count uh, compared to a lot of other folks in the movie. She starts off wearing this white cardigan or this light colored cardigan, and it slowly becomes redder as the movie goes on. And by the end of the movie, she's been stabbed and dealt so much damage that like her clothing is becoming red, which is just just perfect, like thematically really interesting. It's subtle because it happens over the course of the film. I just really enjoyed it. It was the visual show, not tell version of we're the same, you and I speech that happens between the protagonist and the villain. It was that, but in like a, in bloody clothes. And I loved it. This is one of those movies that there's lots of little things you could talk about literally forever. I would literally talk about this movie for hours because there's a lot to dissect, but we should probably start to wrap it up. So how about last rounds of thoughts? How about we start with Andre? This for me was is one of those horror movies that I would give to someone that is uh, that isn't into horror. And that's because I think it's a good like starter because it's not like overly gory. It's very good. And it's not like a bunch of jump scares. It's just unsettling and creepy. And it does that so well that I feel like it's a very good good movie to use to help someone kind of ease into the genre that said wasn't my type of horror movie but i cannot say that it was bad like it was it was damn good Ryan, what about you i really enjoyed this movie more than i expected to i didn't expect to be bothered by it deeply i was like okay i could just kind of book my teeth and get through some potential gore stuff but the lack of gore and the focus on on things combined with the cinematography and the acting performances just gave you so much to focus on. There wasn't the horrible existential dread of thinking of someone who looks like you being tortured by you unknowingly coming for revenge, which is an incredibly haunting idea. And the fact that the acting was so good and the cinematography was so was, was so striking that it distracted me from the incredible dread that that idea brings up means that the movie did a pretty good job of what it was trying to do. I definitely am interested in watching it one more time to see if there's more things that I miss, because I think that, like, I feel like watching through to find all the 1111s that show up in the movie or or trying to catch a bunch of the horror movie references, because there's tons of referential pieces in this movie. Like Jason's wearing a Jaws t-shirt when he's walking on the beach. Like they're, they're, they're just everywhere. And, you know, I, I, I enjoy things that give you enough texture to give them a second read. So, you know, like, I really enjoyed this film, and I think a lot of folks will like it, even if they're not big horror people. How about you, James? I would agree with the last thing Ryan said, is I think this movie will be enjoyed by people who are not horror people. It's a very tense movie, and if you're bothered by, like, sort of the dread of the situation, I think this movie has a lot of that in spades. But I think it's probably one of the best-made horror movies that I've seen. I think all the pieces of it work really well. I think the story doesn't necessarily hit in all the ways, but I think, at least from my perspective, that can be true of horror movies in general. I still don't like it as much as Get Out. Having seen these two movies, and these are probably the only two horror movies I've seen in like the last five years or whatever, I think, for me, the Get Out story I like better. But I think this movie maybe is a little bit better made than Get Out as far as like the way all the elements work together. I haven't seen Get Out in a while, so I'll reserve judgment on that exactly. But I definitely did like this movie, but I just I don't think I would watch it again. But I do think I would recommend it to pretty much anybody. 
think I, I resonate with a lot of what James said. I mean, I am a huge horror fan. I have, my sister used to force me to watch horror movies before bed when I was five or six. So I've just sort of like, uh, to steal a phrase from Bane, I was born in the dark, basically. <laughs> and as a person who does love horror films, I think this is a movie that really competently uses all the key horror elements I would want to see in a film, right? It is really technically well done and beautiful. I think the part that, as a horror fan, makes me sad is that Peel does a disservice to the story by not fully committing to the mythos that he started to create, and rather feeling like he needed to explain it, and doing so with a really clumsy exposition. I do wonder what a fully complete and realized mythology might have looked like if and how it might have changed the world in a way um, the same way that the concept of the sunken place in Get Out did and this didn't get that opportunity right I mean horror films often like to James's point don't make sense think about Halloween Mike Myers Mike Myers doesn't make sense what is Mike Myers why is he unkillable it doesn't matter the movies don't try to answer that question really because it doesn't matter he just is it's implacable and that's what that's the whole concept and I wish that Peel had felt comfortable in adopting that mindset for this film. Because I think the film is better in the places where it doesn't tell you and explain the world for you than in the places where it does. And I think the mistake that Peel made was trying to answer the question of where the tether came from, when the only question that actually mattered was, what did they want? And that was a question that was answered by, by Red saying, we want to take our time and that was literally sufficient as far as I was concerned. The rest should just be watching the story unfold. And story's not even right, the right word. Watching the chase unfold, the interactions between the characters, not in trying to figure out how we got to this place, because obviously it doesn't matter at this point how we got here. This is just what's happening. I also thought after the first watch, I had the privilege of seeing this in the theater back when that you know, was a luxury we got to have in the old days, the before time, the long, long ago. Uh, and I do think that it was an excellent movie to see on a large screen because people often think that large screens are for fantasy films and big action sequences. And they actually are perfect for horror films if the horror film is as well crafted as, as this one. I didn't think after watching it that I would need to see it again. But on my rewatch this week, I actually realized how much fun it is to actually rewatch this film. Like it is a really solid horror film that you can just throw out in the background, watch at night, in the summer. And kind of move on with. So I do think it has that rewatchability to it, even if it doesn't feel like it. And I definitely encourage all of, our, all of our listeners to give it a chance. Right. Go seek it out. On again, one of any 5,000 different HBO streaming services they're currently offering. Find it on Amazon Prime and rent it. Uh, but it's definitely worth watching. as one of uh, Jordan Peele's great films. Also, can I just say that I really appreciate the uh, Hands Across America because I went to that. Like my family, my family went to Hands Across America. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I remember I was four. And my mom took my sister and I, who's four years old than I, in her red Camaro, because my mother did not drive a, like a regular parent's car when I was young. She drove a red Camaro, uh, two-door, broke down a lot. Uh, we'd fold down the back seat so that we could sit up taller and look out the window. Car broke down on the way down to Ohio to, you know, find our place in line. But I remember actually standing in line after hours with hundreds of other complete strangers and some of my family members and like doing the like joint hands stand the line thing. I also remember that I'd lost my shoes and it was super hot that day. So I had to stand on my cousin's feet because the pavement was too hot for my four-year-old feet to stand on. 
that's just a thing. So I appreciate that someone made a reference to Hands Across America in 2019 because I never thought I would see that because we all wanted to forget it happened because it was dumb. And with that, let's go ahead and maybe wrap up. This has been the Black Movie Podcast talking through Jordan Peele's Us from 2019. And our next podcast episode, we'll be talking about school days. So that'll be a departure uh, from this particular genre. But join us for that. Have a good night. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown. And our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Even if you never heard of me, just know I'm murdering. Leave all these kids with third degrees. Evidence is empirically laid out in front for you to see. I found the Trinity. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things I need.